Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 180, Eager to Fight. Today, we are leaving Egypt. Pharaoh is marshalling his troops and heading off to battle. From Egypt to Canaan, we are following the troops and the chariots. This episode comes to you as an offering from James Bowlby, Kevin Johansson, and Emery Trask, who kindly made donations to the podcast. Folks, you are most generous, and I appreciate your support. With your gifts, we can pay the troops to guard our homes while Pharaoh is off on campaign. We can keep the lights on and the granaries full so that everyone is comfortable as the soldiers head out. Thank you dearly for all your support. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us hitch up the horses, strap on our shields. The armies are marching. In 1302 BCE, Egypt had a new monarch. His name was Suti, or Seti, meaning belonging to Seth. He was approximately 30 years old, mature but youthful. More importantly, Seti was energetic in rule and experienced in leadership. Before his ascent, Seti had served his father, Ramesses I, as a governor. He had also led military endeavours on behalf of the old king. So young Seti was no stranger to the ways of the campaign. Now, as pharaoh, Seti was the supreme commander of Egypt's troops. The archers, the spears, the chariots, and the ships They all obeyed his will as the monarch of the two lands. Early in his reign, just six months or so after taking power, Seti put that army to use. The king would lead a military expedition to the north and the east. He would travel from the fertile Delta region near the Mediterranean coast, across the Sinai Peninsula, all the way to Canaan. This was his first campaign as king, but it would not be the last. As king of Egypt, Seti led several campaigns. Scholars debate the exact number, but it's somewhere between three and six. The chronology, scope, and purpose of these campaigns differs from researcher to researcher, but what we can say is that Seti I was an active leader, taking multiple campaigns into foreign lands. More importantly, he left detailed records of those events including the places he attacked, the foes he faced, and the victories he achieved. On the walls of Karnak Temple, Seti commissioned a suite of elaborate images. These wall carvings showed the monarch and his soldiers marching out of Egypt to rage against various enemies. From Karnak, we have images of Seti going to the north, Canaan, 
the West, Libya, and the South, Nubia. Each of these campaigns was a major undertaking, and Seti glorified them all at the temple. The first of his campaigns was the northern one, into Canaan. Our story begins in Egypt. It was 1302 BCE, give or take. The month is unclear, the texts do not tell us, but scholars estimate March or April as a likely starting point. This was a good time to embark on a military expedition. The flood season, Arket, was over, so the Nile was returning to more predictable levels. The planting season, Peret, was finishing, so the crops were sowed, the labour was done, for now. The Egyptians had a few months before they needed to harvest the fields and gather in the crops, so it was a good time to head off without disrupting the economy. As the weather started to warm from the cool days of winter, conditions were right for war. At home, King Seti I was enjoying his new authority and prestige. He had celebrated his coronations, appearing at the temples to receive crowns and blessings from the gods. He had buried his father in a beautiful tomb in the south. His lands were prosperous, peaceful, and quiet. A good time to be a monarch. Of course, peace would soon be shattered. As the pharaoh was enjoying his life, news reached his ears. Trouble, even chaos, was brewing in the north and east. The king's story, written on the walls of Karnak Temple, begins as follows. Quote, Year one of the repeating of births, or renaissance, of the king of southern and northern Egypt, Seti, etc., etc. Behold, a messenger came to inform his person, the king, the wretched ones of the Shasu are planning rebellion. Their great ones, the leaders and chieftains, are gathered in one place upon the mountain ridges. They have fallen into confusion, they are fighting amongst themselves. Each one slays his fellow, and they disregard the commands of Pharaoh's palace. End quote. Well, this was intriguing news. Far to the east, in the hills of Sinai and southern Canaan, the nomads were causing trouble. The Bedouin of the desert, whom the Egyptians call Shasu, or wanderers, were fighting amongst themselves. What's more, they were disobeying the Egyptian authorities. It's not clear how they were doing this, but Seti did not care about those details. Any disruption, any rejection of royal authority, was a solid basis for war. How did Seti react? On the walls of Karnak, the hieroglyphs tell the tale of Seti's response. You might expect the king to show concern, even anger, at news of a rebellion. War was serious business. Surely, Seti would be wary. Nope. Seti was a young and active monarch, and he demonstrated this with pride. The hieroglyphs say, quote, The heart of his person, the king, was pleased at the news of rebellion. The young god, Seti, rejoices at beginning a fight. He is eager to hear of his attacker. His heart is satisfied at seeing blood. He, Seti, cuts off the heads of the rebels. He loves trampling them, even more than he loves a day of festival. His person slays all of them at once. He leaves no heirs or children among them. 
Whoever escapes his hand is merely a prisoner brought to the land of the Nile. End quote. Seti was far from angry. He was happy. The pharaoh of Egypt, all of 30 years old, was healthy, vigorous, and active, and he intended to be the very model of a modern pharaonic general. King Seti, the renaissance of royal majesty, was eager for a fight. Like the warlords of old, Tutmos, Amosa, Namer, he would go to war. In other words, the Bedouin rebellion could not have been better timed. Just as Egypt's new pharaoh settled into his power, an opportunity arose. The chance for victory, the chance to assert royal power. How convenient. As our story begins, we should keep in mind, Seti is communicating a specific idea of royal authority and strength. The king wants us to view him as an enthusiastic, active warrior. He does not shrink from battle, he does not fear danger. He goes forth, weapon in hand, to slay his enemies. That motif is a classic and central feature of the Egyptian monarchy. It goes all the way back to the dawn of their kingdom. Did this image correspond at all to the reality? We will never know for sure, but for Seti, and for most pharaohs, this image of warrior and conqueror was an essential part of their public and religious persona. The hieroglyphs and images which describe Seti's wars are communicating that vision. So let's bear that in mind as we set off on campaign. In 1302 BCE, the king of Egypt received news. Rebellion was brewing in the Sinai and southern Canaan. Seti responded, and according to his war records, the king moved quickly. The walls of Karnak show King Seti travelling across the Sinai Peninsula. The images are impressive. Seti himself rides his chariot going along the road. He wears a short wig with curled hair. He holds the reins of his chariot, plus a curved sword, the kopesh, along with a bow. The horses, two of them, go at a trot. They wear feathers in their headgear that wave in the breeze. Above, a vulture glides on the air currents, extending its wings over the king. In its talons, the vulture clutches an oval loop. This is the symbol shen, meaning eternity or everlastingness. In other words, Seti's war and his victory occur forever, preserved on the temple walls. The images show Seti marching along the road. As he goes, the king passes small fortresses. These forts, which look like tiny castles, are dotted along the Sinai. Each fort has a name, and scholars have located many of these sites archaeologically. Along the northern coast of Sinai Peninsula, the landscape is dotted with forts and camps dating to the Egyptian New Kingdom. I'll talk about these Sinai fortresses another time. They are interesting, but they're not our focus right now. Let's stay with the king and his troops. Seti marched along the Mediterranean coast. It's not clear how long this journey took, Seti does not record that, but scholars generally give the Egyptian army, on foot, a top speed of 24 kilometers or 15 miles per day. The Sinai road was approximately 144 kilometers or 90 miles. 
So giving a day or two for rest or interruption, the king should have crossed Sinai in approximately seven days. The journey was not peaceful. On the walls of Karnak, Seti tells us of the campaign. He and his warriors marched into the Sinai, and they wreaked havoc on the locals. Quote, Year one of the king of southern and northern Egypt, Seti, etc., etc. The destruction which the sturdy arm of Pharaoh, life, prosperity, and health, has made against the wretched ones of Shasu, the Bedouin. His person seized upon them like a terrifying lion, turning them into corpses throughout their valleys. He wallowed in their blood, as if they had never existed. Any who slipped through his fingers spread word of his power to distant foreign lands. And they say, It is the might of Father Amun who has decreed for Seti bravery and victory over every foreign country. End quote. The text is violent, but the images are even worse. On the walls of the temple, we see enormous tableau as Seti rides his chariot into battle. The king, moving by himself, races full tilt, and he raises his bow to loose arrows upon the enemy. Ahead of Seti's chariot, a great mass of Shasu tumble about in confusion. There are dozens of them, falling over one another. They seem to have gathered around a town, a hilltop fort that appears in the scene. The Shasu carry spears, and small helmets, or at least wigs, but they are totally incapable of resisting the pharaoh's might. And as Seti charges into them, these nomads are utterly disrupted. The soldiers tumble about over one another, and Seti's arrows have pierced many. Shasu appear with arrows sticking out of their necks and chests. In one image, a chap has been totally impaled by Seti's effective bow. The enemy doesn't stand a chance. The horses trample over them as they ride, and the king keeps on firing. In the corner of one scene, we even see a woman and a child watching the chaos. The message is brutal, but effective. Everyone in this community is subject to Seti's power. They will submit, or they will die. It's grandiose in the best pharaonic tradition, but we get the idea. In this passage, Seti behaves like a war god, like Sakmet, the lioness of war and plague. The reference is vague, and they don't specifically name Sakmet, but the parallel is there between the lines. Basically, Seti's campaign against the Shasu was a rapid offensive, and he was not taking many prisoners. The king's narrative goes on to describe his conquest in greater detail. Quote, Seti is the young god, the sun of Egypt, the moon of all lands. He is like Montu, the war god, in foreign lands, and he is never defeated. Seti is bold of heart, like Baal. There is none who can retreat from him. He has extended the boundaries of Egypt to the limits of the sky. As for the hill country of the rebels, none could escape them, on account of the Shasu who had attacked the king. But his person, Seti, captured all of the rebels, so that none escaped. End quote. The violence, supposedly, was great. Seti, or his biographers, compare the king to Montu, the falcon god of war, and also to Baal, a Canaanite storm god. In other words, the ancient authors are piling on the references. The king is a lion like Sakmet, 
a raging warrior like Montu, and a stormbringer like Baal. Combine that with his name, Seti, belonging to Seth, and you run the full gamut of powerful warrior deities. The pharaoh was not messing around. His biographers, or propagandists, were playing big with the religious military imagery. To borrow a phrase, Seti was Egypt's divine wind, a typhoon against his enemies. The Egyptian soldiers and their leader Seti crossed the Sinai Peninsula. En route, they attacked the camps of nomads, the Bedouin. Seti and his warriors slaughtered these Shasu, and they took many of them prisoner. We can imagine that as the army moved on, garrison troops led long lines of captives back towards Egypt. These prisoners would become slaves, destined to work on the farms, estates, workshops, and even the mines and quarries. As Seti marched, entire communities followed him into captivity. We should always remember that side of these glorious conquests. Seti's army achieved its goal. They attacked the Shasu nomads, dispersing their camps and killing or enslaving their peoples. It was a swift and savage victory. Having triumphed over his enemies, Seti could have stopped there. But he did not. Instead, the pharaoh continued marching. He began heading north and east. Now, he was moving into Canaan. After the break, Seti expands his war goals. The Shasu campaign was a success, but there was more to do. A new pharaoh, unproved and untested, should really show his face in the imperial provinces. In a moment, we'll watch as Seti invades southern Canaan. Things won't go entirely to plan. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The year was 1302 BCE, approximately. Late April or early May. Year 1, under the power of Men Ma'at-Ra, King Seti I. The pharaoh had left Egypt, marching along the Sinai Peninsula. En route, he and his army attacked nomads and took prisoners. Now, the king moved forward, and his forces came to Canaan. Canaan, or Ka-Nana in Egyptian, was a distinct region full of different peoples and towns. Today, the lands of Canaan cover several different countries along the Mediterranean coast and deserts. Canaan is not one place, but several. And within this patchwork land, the Egyptian kings held sway as overlords. Seti arrived in Canaan as the heir to a political arrangement that dated back centuries. Since the days of Tutmose III, or even Amosa, Egyptian rulers had pushed their military authority into this region. Going ever northward, they captured cities, humbled local rulers, 
and compelled them to pay tribute. The Egyptian empire in Canaan was loose. They did not rule it directly, so the locals still conducted their own business and managed their own affairs. But Egyptian officials, governors, passed through these areas regularly, representing Pharaoh's authority and reminding those locals who was the ultimate boss. Of course, if there was any trouble, then Egyptian soldiers were ready to make a demonstration. Seti arrived in Canaan shortly after his Shasu campaign. Marching along the coast, the pharaoh entered this region from the south. We see him doing this on the walls of Karnak Temple. In one image, the king stands in his chariot while foreign princes bring tribute. Following his attack on the Shasu, Seti is now far more peaceful. The king's horses are calm, and Seti himself turns back to watch as the foreign princes come to offer tribute. The image is damaged, so we can't identify these people specifically. But the costumes show a mix of groups, including Canaanites and Syrians. Supposedly, Seti gathered leaders from across this region, and they came to offer praise, obedience, and tribute. That tribute stands behind Seti. Large vases and bowls made of metal pile up on a table, and the king claims to have taken silver, gold, and precious stones from all of these lands. Again, Seti is not too concerned with the finer details. What matters is the bigger picture and message. The pharaoh comes to Canaan, and the Canaanites submit. At this point, Seti's battle reliefs are really summarizing a sequence of events. Sometimes they focus on a specific moment, like the attack on the Shasu, but other times the artists condense days, weeks, even months of activity into a single image. We can assume that Seti, arriving in Canaan, did not meet every local ruler in a single day. Logically, it would take time to gather these princes into one place. So chances are this tribute scene is actually taking place over several days or weeks. Seti and his troops probably spent a couple of months camping in Canaan. The scenes of tribute with foreign rulers bowing before the king might sound like the end of the campaign. The king has arrived and he has shown his power. That's all, right? Not quite. Seti had one more problem to tackle. Our story now moves to a region in northern Israel. Not far from the Sea of Galilee, there is a town called Beth Shan. Beth Shan, or Beth Shan, was a hilltop community dominating a broad valley. It was a good location for defense, observation, and control. Beth Shan was not a new town, far from it. People had made their homes here for over a thousand years before Seti's reign. But in the past few centuries, the Egyptian government had really dominated this location. Their influence is visible in the architecture, the pottery, the small artifacts, and even the traces of religious life. Archaeologists exploring Bethshan have found abundant evidence for Egyptian rule. We'll get into that more in the future. The point is, Bethshan has a deep history, and for a long time, it had been a centre of Egyptian authority. Then, somebody stole it. In the first year of Seti's rule, a rebellion broke out near Bethshan. Not the town itself, 
but somewhere in the local community, an armed revolt took hold. Soon, the rebel leaders did something brave. They attacked Beth Shan directly. And what's more, they captured it, occupying the town. As you can imagine, that was a daring feat, to steal a prominent centre from under Pharaoh's nose. The fall of Beth Shan to these rebels was unacceptable. Seti responded decisively. Quote, Year 1, the third month of Shemu. Day 10. On this day, one came to inform his person, Seti, thus. The messenger said, The wretched chief who is in the town of Hamat has gathered to himself many people, and they have seized the town of Beth Shan. The wretched chief has joined with the people from Pahil, and they are even besieging the town of Rehab. So, his person, Seti, sent forth an army. He sent the first division of Amun, called Rich in Bows. They went against the town of Hamat. He sent the first division of Ra, called Abounding in Bravery, against the town of Bethshan. And he sent the first division of Seth, called Strong of Bows, against the town of Yenoam. Thus, within the span of a day, the divisions were victorious, and all the towns had fallen to the might of Seti. End quote. This tale sounds a bit dramatic. Someone steals Bethshan and several other villages. Seti dispatches his forces, and they overwhelm the rebels in the space of one day. Taking that with a grain of salt, is there any evidence that Seti actually did this, or that he even came to this region? Surprisingly, yes, there is. The narrative I just recounted doesn't actually come from Karnak Temple, like the other records. This one comes from Beth Shan itself. The text is recorded on a stela, which King Seti erected at Beth Shan. Archaeologists working here uncovered the grand stone tablet that records Seti's deeds. Apparently, he visited Beth Shan and commissioned this monument in the wake of his victory. It would be a permanent reminder of Pharaoh's presence and his speed, his power, and his aggression. The king put it here as a monument, and as a warning. The Beth Shan Stela is noteworthy for two reasons. First, it gives more information about Seti's movements from the Canaanite area itself, rather than just from Karnak. Second, the text gives us a glimpse at Seti's army, specifically its organisation, the Beth Shan Stealer specifically mentions three regiments or divisions of Seti's forces. These divisions were named after the great deities, Amun, Ra, and Seth. And each one had their own epithet, strong of bows, abounding in bravery, etc. I like those names. They give a sense of the group, the character of the troops. You could imagine the archers from strong of bows taking pride in their devastating volleys, or the foot soldiers of abounding in bravery being unusually bold and audacious. Maybe it's just imaginative thinking, but the references are evocative. Incidentally, the reign of Seti I and the 19th dynasty generally is going to give us a lot more evidence for Egypt's armed forces. Over coming episodes, we will dive deeper and deeper into the organisation weaponry, tactics, and the people who formed Egypt's army. The Beth Shan Stela is a good introduction to this topic, 
The three divisions, Seth, Amun, and Ra, were battalions of troops, and each had their own character and role. In the future, we'll get to explore this topic in much greater detail. Anyway, King Seti dispatched his army divisions. The result was a total victory. Pharaoh's troops in the regiments of Amun, Ra, and Seth defeated the rebels everywhere. They recaptured towns that had fallen. The insurrection was crushed. Following the victory, Seti himself visited Beth Shan, or at least his representatives did, and they commissioned a stela describing these events. The Beth Shan stela is valuable because it gives us a specific date. These events took place, or the stela was erected, in year one, the third month of Shemu, day 10. That puts Seti, or his generals, in Beth Shan sometime around June of 1302 BCE. The summer heat was at its height, the land baked under the sun, it swirled with dust, and the soldiers shed their sweat and blood amid the hill countries. Now, in the heat of high summer, it was finally time to go home. The campaign season was coming to an end. The heat was reaching its greatest ferocity. The annual flood would be starting soon, and the army, which included many farmers and labourers, would need to be home to finish gathering the harvest. For Seti, there was another reason to wrap things up. The king was now rapidly approaching his first anniversary, the one-year marker of his royal ascent. The anniversary was just a few weeks away. It was time to head home, to make offerings to the gods, and to present the spoils of war. So the Beth Shan Stela seems to mark the end of Seti's great campaign. Let's pause our narrative here and reflect on what the king had done. Seti I had led an army into Sinai and southern Canaan. He had attacked the Shasu, or Bedouin, and he had marched on various towns in the area. He had repelled an attack from local armies, and his troops had captured several locations. Overall, the record appears to present a litany of victory. The king came, he saw, he conquered. That's the basic narrative of events, as far as Seti reports them. In the big picture though, what had Seti really achieved? What was the point of all of this? Strategically, it's hard to pin down exactly what Seti had done. His attack on the Bedouin might have been a response to local disorder, but that could also have just been an excuse. If we're being charitable and take Seti at his word, the Bedouin could pose a threat to agriculture, trade, and travel. Nomads tend to be highly mobile, and their warbands can strike hard at isolated rural communities. They do struggle with larger, fortified centres, but farming hamlets, villages, and trading outposts are all fair game for a swift, decisive raider. Seti's attack may have brought security to the fields, rivers, and roads of Sinai and Canaan. His assault, swift and brutal, might have scattered the Bedouin enough to remove them as a threat, at least temporarily. With an aggressive pharaoh in Egypt, the nomads might think twice about threatening the settled communities. For a while at least, 
the people of northern Sinai and southern Canaan might plant their fields in peace. Traders might set out confidently. Diplomats and envoys might travel fearlessly. These are possible outcomes of SETI's rapid offensive. With Canaan, though, things are different. If the Beth Shan stealer represents the limit of SETI's campaign, then he really didn't go that far north. Beth Shan is located near Jerusalem, but just south of the Sea of Galilee. In the big picture, this was well within the Egyptian sphere of influence. As Pharaoh, Seti could reasonably expect obedience and tribute even far north of Beth Shan. The Egyptian rulers held sway over lands all the way to modern Lebanon and southern Syria. Further north of that, things got complicated, but at the very least, we can say that Seti's first campaign up to Beth Shan mostly stayed within the limits of their Canaanite empire. Why would he do that? In hindsight, Seti's first campaign seems less like a war and more like a diplomatic raid. The king's troops came forth in strength to ransack the locals and crack a few skulls. They didn't come for conquest. Canaan was already conquered. Instead, the Egyptians came to show their power, rattle their spears, and collect some tribute. Seti came to Canaan to assert his authority, to remind the locals whom they served. He gathered materials, crushed any dissenters, and demonstrated his royal resolve. This wasn't a war in the full sense. It was more like a display. Of course, that doesn't mean it was peaceful. There was conflict and disorder in various regions. The death of one pharaoh and the rise of a new one was a good time for rebellion. Local leaders, feeling bold, might test the limits of a new monarch's power. It had happened before. King Tutmose III had to wage war almost immediately after he took power. And you can imagine some community or group seizing the opportunity for a bit of raiding or plunder while the Egyptians were distracted with a change in monarchy. The point is, Seti wasn't fighting a full war against a determined, well-resourced enemy. But he was fighting. The Egyptian troops were here to show their strength, but sometimes they needed to demonstrate that with force. So the strategic context is a little bit more complicated than we might expect. On his first campaign as pharaoh, Seti really didn't go too far. He stayed within the limits of Canaan and his imperial power. You may be wondering, why did he do that? If he was young and strong, why not go further? The answer is simple. Seti would go further in the future. In subsequent campaigns, the king would push more aggressively into northern Canaan and into Syria, and he would attack more powerful enemies directly. We'll cover those stories when we get to them, but maybe Seti kept his first campaign limited as a simple precaution. Perhaps he was testing the situation, gathering information and news from local rulers. He would collect the tribute that was owed to him as a new monarch, and he would use this diplomatic raid as a foundation for bigger projects in the future. In short, Seti's first campaign is small, but remarkably well documented, and it set the stage for larger conflicts to come. 
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Today, we have taken our first look at Seti's military adventures, but there will be more. In future episodes, the king will go forth again and again. He will lead his troops to battle and victory in many foreign lands. We'll follow Seti on those different campaigns, and we'll start to look deeper at the Egyptian army. So for today, we have set the scene. Seti is an aggressive, active warlord, one who strikes quickly and successfully. It was a good marker for things to come. As the pharaohs marched to war, they inevitably required blessings from the gods. Of course, in the day-to-day, these blessings were communicated by priests. And I also receive great generosity from my priest-level backers on Patreon.com. Special thanks must go to Paul, Veronica, Ashley, Martha, Stephen, Neden, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, and Linda. Folks, you are too kind. I won't bring you war captives or plunder, but I can bring you stories and research. Thank you for your support, and may the blessings of Montu, Sakhmet, Baal, and Seth strengthen your arm and defeat your enemies, wherever they may be. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me on this chapter. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and I will see you very soon. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.